the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety, twists, endings, and all, without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. I'm Paul Tyler and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books and TV shows in their entirety. This week we're watching David Lynch's 2001 neo-noir mystery, Mulholland Drive. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the ending of the film for what it's worth. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen Mulholland Drive, go away, watch it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right. On with the show. Introductions are important. The first few minutes or even seconds you hear now may well determine if you keep listening or go and find that episode of Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces podcast that you've saved but haven't got around to playing. You know the one. Interesting person, but not someone you've heard of. But you know you're going to like it because if nothing else, Pip is always engaging. Hello? Hello? The girl is still missing. Our introductions differ a little, but have an enjoyably recognisable format. Brief description of plot, bit of background on the key players maybe, something formulated from the trivia section of IMDb, for balance, a positive and negative critic's response to our subject. Now, these intros usually end up asking a question that ultimately I'll forget to bring up with Andy and Rachel, because my woodwork teacher... Mr. Gaskin was correct when he described me as easily distracted. He was right, but the wooden sliding pencil case I made is still working 27 years on. So we know I'd get there in the end. Hello? Talk to me. The same. Getting there in the end is what this introduction is all about. After staring at a screen trying to surmise David Lynch's Mulholland Drive in a pithy paragraph, well, it felt... it felt like a challenge greater than Mr Gaskin thought I was capable of. Hello. Hello? Do you know somebody called... the Cowboy? The Cowboy? So is the point of the introduction that there is no point, or that Mr Gaskin is a fine carpenter but not a great communicator? Is it that you really should listen to the episodes of Scroobius Pip's distraction pieces that don't have famous people in them? The following programme contains none of these answers. Like with Mulholland Drive, you're on your own. It is what it is. And that's quite possibly the greatest gift you can be given. Work it out for yourself. Hello? Hello, Mr Gaskin. Have I seen your chisel? Brilliant! <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what's going on. Later in the show, we'll be taking a look at directors who bring a sense of magic 
to their movies. But first, welcome, 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 and joining me in paradise to easily unravel Mulholland Drive are a woman that woke up this morning with a blue key on her coffee table. It's Rachel Burnett. <laughs> Hello. And a man who always takes a golf club into meetings. <laughs> it's Andy Golding. Hello. Hello. Now, before uh, Andy and Rachel uncover what they think about Mulholland Drive, let's find out just why we're in this mess in the first place. Now, I don't agree with requests. They should always be kept to a minimum. Uh, but fortunately for you, everyone else on the spoiler team is a reasonable and rounded person and welcomed this request with open arms. I'm Phil Hawkins and I have suggested that the spoiler team might want to check out Mulholland Drive, the David Lynch film. It's one of my favourite films and uh, I first encountered it when I was doing A-levels. I stayed up way later than I should have uh, because it came on the telly and I was fascinated by it and uh, I was quite tired at college the next day as a, as a consequence um, and it just blew my mind. It's uh, such a surreal film. When I got to university, I showed it to my housemate and we ended up watching it four times in one night just because we kept on watching it and going, that was amazing, but I'm not sure why. Um, and we did some, you know, some internet uh, searching to try and find out any theories on it. And then we went and rewatched it again. And I don't think by the end of it, we come to any conclusions other than it was an amazing film. So I'd love to hear what you guys think of it. Well, thanks for that, Phil. Now... <laughs> I genuinely thought about writing six questions for this review. Who, why, what, how, where and when. <laughs> and then just leaving you both to it. You know, I'll go and make a cup of tea or something. But uh, Andy, I'm going to open this with two words and a noise. Mulholland Drive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I can't argue with you there, Paul. What uh, have you got? What have you got for me? Come on. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying that I think this is a brilliant film by a brilliant director who... Uh, I go way back with, not personally, but I'm on. <laughs> um, uh, I started out watching David Lynch films when I was in sixth form. Uh, I started with his first film, with Razorhead, and uh, it baffled me, but intrigued the hell out of me. And across the course of one summer, me and my then girlfriend watched it about six or seven times. And that, that got me going with, with David Lynch films. And uh, I think... It's it's key that you uh, that you need to. I don't think Mulholland Drive is the right place to start if you've never seen a David Lynch film because he he, he creates such a, a distinct world across all his films and they're, they're possibly interlocking or interweaving. But I think this is this is quite a, a heavy piece to start off with. But it's also a piece that seems to connect with certain people who don't like David Lynch. I mean, Roger Ebert was never a fan of, of David Lynch. He did some pretty damning reviews right through his career right up until Mulholland Drive, which he, he really, really liked. So uh, there's obviously something different in it. Uh, when I was thinking about this, the, the first the first thing I, I was worried about is the word pretentious coming up, because I hate the word pretentious. I've been guilty of using it in the past, but I think it's, it's the enemy of invention. I think fear of being pretentious or accusations of pretentiousness stop great sort of ambitious pieces like this being made uh, and even more than that I hate the term Emperor's New Clothes which I've seen levelled at, at Mulholland Drive quite a lot which to me it, it's saying it's not only saying here's what I think of something it's saying here's what you think of it as well so it's a very arrogant position to take uh, and I think that there's definitely things in here I don't think David Lynch just said I'm going to put a load of crazy stuff on the screen and con everyone Chiefly because I think it's ludicrous to suggest that. I think it would be you'd have a far harder time making a film that was just a load of nonsense than you would having a thematic string to hang things on. 
Uh, I saw uh, the great Barry Norman once. I saw him do a live show and he was talking about this this film and he said he loved it, but he didn't understand anything that was going on. And he, he interviewed David Lynch and he said to David Lynch, uh, I loved your film, More Home Drive, but I ain't got a clue what it's about. And David Lynch said to him, yes, you have, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> and Barry Norman well, said that's when he felt that David Lynch didn't have a clue what More Home Drive was about either. <laughs> but I think it, it really, it, it kind of shows that I think what he probably meant by that is that what we bring to it is as important as what David Lynch made, the the whole point of what he was trying to do. And so I don't think David Lynch made it with no idea of what it was about, but I think he thought, here's what it's about for me, but let's leave these doors open for people to bring in their interpretations. And it's I think it's endured a lot more in leaving those doors open than it would if about six months later he'd come out and said... Okay, good guesses. Here's what it's about. Slam, 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 slam. Mm. Yeah, would you, it's always no, it's always terrible. I think I've probably said on this podcast before. You know, once I I found out what losing my religion by REM was about. You yeah. know, he's kind of no, that's that's not what it's about because it's not that's not what it's been about for me. It's always been about bad dancing generally. But, <laughs> um, it's, so, Rachel, I mean, are you a fan of, of putting a lot of work into uh, you know a, a, a film? Do you, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you if you're like me, you perhaps have to be in the mood. But I mean, you know, this you you have to you, you bring something to the game yourself, don't you? You totally do. It's really interesting. I really like unpicking a film. My housemate gets most annoyed with me because <laughs> at the end of a film, I'll go, "Oh yeah, I can see that they were doing this and they were doing that and that meant that and that meant that," and he'll go. What, you actually saw that? I didn't see that at all. And um, But I'm constantly, I don't try, it just kind of happens. I'm always looking for little links and connections. Um, it was interesting what you said, Andy, like you're a massive John Lynch fan and, John, hello, <laughs> you're a massive David Lynch fan and um, and what would you, you know, wouldn't want this to be a, a first film for somebody. And yeah. It's my first film <laughs> and I loved it. Oh, I absolutely then. loved it. <laughs> it's really weird. I think it's because you do bring something of yourself to it. And for me, I totally connected with the characters because it's very, it's very female. It's very yeah. female orientated, which is great. Mm-hmm. The performances were fantastic. I am a very lucid dreamer. I dream crazy. I'm a crazy dreamer, <laughs> and I dream in full color, which isn't apparently that well. It's not doesn't happen that often to dream in full color, but I do. Really. So for me, it was all <laughs> making quite a lot of sense. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, somebody's got inside my head a little bit. So I just kept putting all these little strings together I really enjoyed it I enjoyed putting all the little strings together and making connections and going oh yeah that could be that and oh look that person's there and that cowboy just walked in the background and and so I, I really enjoyed it for that I really really enjoyed it and Naomi Watts I am in love <laughs> obviously because she's just stunning Absolutely stunning. Yeah, she is. And have, you, have either of you spent any time? And, and this, I think, I didn't. I did with one section in it where there's a, a lingering shot on a blue book, and I can't, I can't remember whereabouts in the film it is. There's a lingering shot on a blue book. I have my phone sat next to me. I said, oh, I've done this must be an answer to something, if there is an answer or something worth digging out. I looked at it, I got, it's led me straight to this website full of theories and things like that, and I made a, <laughs> a decision then not to lose any time on this yeah. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I, th- I think that way lies madness. I think it, yes. would, it would take me down a, a, a road I don't want to go to. And, I, and actually, like you say, that I'd, I'd, I'd rather... It was with me for days afterwards, and I saw this, oh, it must be about... It must be 10 years ago, something like that. So, so I was familiar with it, and that you know, in, in some roles, and you, know, you remembered some scenes and something about a cowboy, and not much else. And but then actually, no, it's with you for days afterwards, and that's that's the thing. That's where you get that's where you value for money is because you're thinking, oh, it might have been that. 
Oh, no. <laughs> or the question is, you know, if you find a blue box now, are you going to put the key in? No, thanks. <laughs> I think we're going swimmingly before that. But the, uh, I mean, I mean, critics' choice. I mean, they, they, there's, there was, was it this uh, sometime around re- uh, recent uh, recent times? They, they, that's not a sentence. <laughs> Break that down, or is it a sentence? Oh well, <laughs> David Lynch would say possibly. Recently, <laughs> do you think it's a sentence? <laughs> <laughs> Recently, uh, the critics, you know, they all wrote down their favourite films, and it, it culminated in, in in this being. And I don't know. It, it, before we watched that, uh, this again, that kind of put me off watching it because because I think oh, critics. Which is what we are really, isn't it? Sat in this room, <laughs> but but I, I don't know. I just thought, well, no, I, if, if they like it. It's going to be pretentious. <laughs> said it, said it. Uh, oh dear. I it's that know. recommendations thing with you again, isn't it, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> I can't get over it. Someone recommends something. I mean, you know, this film was recommended to you, but I am so pleased. I am so pleased it was um, because it's important, this film, isn't it? Because mm. it. When, when you see David Lynch interviewed uh, a couple of times about this, uh, and again, I didn't go uh, too far with it, a couple of YouTube videos, and both both of them start out with the same question, you know, what's the film about? <laughs> and you can see him just take a big, deep breath inwards. But I suppose that is just their, their standard thing. You know, when they turn up to work an interviewer for that kind of programme, internet programme about, you know, for interviewing a director... Number question zero zero one is let them introduce the film and talk about the characters and talk about the plot and this kind of thing. And uh, he no, actually, he's, he he was very patient with it though. You have to say, you know. <laughs> what did he say when they said what's the film about? I don't. I think, I, do you know, I want to say he said it's not about anything, but I think that's a misquote. Mm. Don't quote me on that. Because it's about everything. Yeah, it's, it's 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 about nothing. But I mean, going back to Naomi Watts and what you said there. This is a perfect showreel for her because, uh, according to, and we love the trivia on uh, on IMDb, uh, <laughs> but apparently she was uh, she was going to uh, jack it all in and sort of you know not be uh, not be an actress anymore. Nicole Kidman sort of talked her out of it and said you know complete this role, and it is it's the perfect showreel for her to say look you know this, this is what this is what I can do because she can be you know the Hollywood starlet she can she can she she can cry she can act bonkers you know and so that that obviously then was the, was the kickstarter for her to be in yeah. everything including Diana which I don't think. We'll talk <laughs> it's also quite unusual though because I think uh, performances in David Lynch films, like most things in David Lynch films, are quite removed from what we understand a performance to be. So some of the performances in Mulholland Drive are on purpose quite sort of heightened or or sort of uh, exaggerated a little bit. Uh, and if you if you watch it back to back with a sort of more realistic film, it can be quite a difficult transition. You can uh, you can think, hang on a minute, they're they're acting a bit strangely here, but in the in the kind of Lynch catalogue, you can see that's the kind of uh, performance he draws out of people, and it's completely consistent with the worlds he creates. And so uh, Naomi Watts, like she's given this performance that is a little bit heightened, but it, it's consistent with this kind of dream logic that, mm. that we're seeing her dream and her sort of idealised version of herself before she then we see this what we. Well, what I assume to be closer to the real version of Ozo. I mean, you can't see anything with this film, can you? That's the no, thing. No. I'm guessing. I mean, what did you guys get from it? See if we got a sort of similar well, idea of it. I suppose, yeah, she had I, sort of idolised in her dream because we see the pillow at the beginning. We see the pillow coming towards her, so she's going yeah. to sleep, and um, which totally. It took me ages to figure out that was what that was at the beginning. And then obviously, when she wakes up, when the box, when she goes inside the box, when Rita goes inside the box. And then it becomes real. For me, that's real life. And it is that strange feeling you get, because my dreams are so crazy. 
I'm looking at it going, yeah, my dream's like that. They're so disjointed and there's bits where you've taken a bit from your life and a bit from a memory and a bit from somewhere else and a colour from there and a name from a from a little sticker on somebody's um, chest and you do sort of mingle it all together and that's what dreams do. It's you trying to process what you've seen and what you've done and what you're feeling. And it, it made total sense to me. <laughs> that's probably because I'm a little bit unhinged. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but it, it did honestly make some kind of strange sense to me and she was sort of escaping from that guilt that she was feeling about what she had done and um, I like the idea of her putting Rita in the dream sequence into some kind of position where she was in control of her she was the nurturer she was the one Rita needed her whereas in real life Rita didn't need her at all and so it's all that wish fulfillment and I just thought it was so clever so incredible I loved it Thank you, Phil, for suggesting this film. <laughs> well, you see, I th- now you're saying that, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that's probably about right. But before that, I was thinking, I was still thinking laterally, as in, you know, what be- what happened before the blue box was real life, and then anything after that was a dream. But I now... Could be. I ain't got a clue. Mm. Could yeah, be. Well, that, that, Who's I, to say? I, was, I thought more like the first time I watched it, I think, and it, it did confuse and slightly frustrate me the first time I saw it, which was years ago. Uh, because I missed that join where the uh, where the identities shift and Betty becomes Diane, and then I just totally lost the thread. And I thought, what's happened to that other story? In this this sort of very intriguing sort of almost Nancy Drew like mystery of finding out Rita's identity and everything that they followed through. And I the first time I saw it, I got frustrated that we didn't go anywhere with that. And we didn't find any answers, and su- and suddenly. We'd gone somewhere completely different. And because I missed that join, I missed all the shifts of identity. And I wondered, it didn't seem to make any sense mm. to me at all. So I went back and watched it again almost immediately that first time and then could start to put it wow. <laughs> together. But I mean, let alone the, the, the frightening bit with the, uh, the the bit around the back of the cafe. Oh, my goodness winkies. me. That really scared me. <laughs> I'm very jumpy, as you know, I'm very sensitive. It's, well, I nearly did what he did. And I was like... <gasps> But um, yeah, that but, immediately jars you. <laughs> yeah, but again, that, I, I, there are bits of that that come in at the end, mm. and I oh, know we're going to get onto the ending for what it's worth um, a, a little bit later on. And also, Andy is going to be taking a look at directors who bring a sense of magic to their movies, and we're going to be talking more about Mulholland Drive. And that's all after this short break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning to buy anything from Amazon, if you do that via the links on our website, we'll get a few pennies each time. That's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including Hillbilly Heart, the autobiography of Billy Ray Cyrus. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help fund producer Johnny's challenge for the UKIP leadership. Now, back to the show. (laughs) It's been a very strange day. Getting stranger. 
Okay, welcome back to Spoiler, where we are discussing Mulholland Drive. And uh, don't forget, because we're called Spoiler, we're talking about all of it, the ending of it, and normally we talk about plots, but <laughs> what's the point? Uh, <laughs> now, uh, the, Andy, the, um, this was made originally for a, a, a TV uh, pilot, you know, I and mean, they spent quite a lot of money on it as well, like millions of dollars they spent on this, putting this in. Um, and then ABC went and destroyed all the sets, which uh, actually turned out to be a blessing, you know, so it gave them uh, a new thought. But uh, I think uh, David Lynch took some... Uh, People were, were quite persistent at him and, and prodding him and, and, and driving him into making it into a film, which is something he, he wasn't particularly keen on doing. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And then he said that he had one one evening where he, he sat down and it all just sort of came together of where he was going to take it, how he was going to tie it up. Mm. And uh, that was in a short period of time, wasn't it? Did I see something like it was like an hour or something? Yeah, like I think like, he oh, did boom. say, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a very short amount of time. But that also, that sort of throws open all sorts of questions about how much of it he knew was with what he, how he ended it was he do you think he had that as a, as an idea for later in the series or do you think that was an entirely different way he took it in which case that throws everything in a new light doesn't it mm. and it, it shows how important it is of what people bring to it i mean he, obviously he had tv experience before from doing twin peaks which was a massive hit and the, this this could have been sort of like the new Twin Peaks if it had uh, been given a chance I and mean, taken up. Given the, the the way certainly American TV producers are seen now, as in like you know this is it. I mean you know if you if you're on a long running TV show, you know Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, that's kind of you know it's it's put. I, I suppose back what was it two thousand and one? So back in in those old in the good old days there. A TV series, you know, I, th- I think if he brought this to the what I'm trying to say is <laughs> if he brought this to the table now, uh, I think people would would probably go for it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's uh, maybe it wouldn't have as much effect though. It might get a bit more lost in the shuffle now, as if it it, it come out then, it would have been a bit more, maybe seemed a bit more ahead of its time. I mean, I think it, 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 when he when David Lynch did Twin Peaks, it was it was going to be an ongoing mystery which didn't have a solution, which he then he was then made to put a solution on it in the second series. So I think he he was no stranger to those kind of pressures of. Mm. Uh, but what what he'd shot doesn't look televisual at all. You don't sit and watch the film and not feel no. like you're watching a film, mm-hmm. do you? It's a it's a very classy piece and maybe uh, maybe a kind of precursor to this kind of golden age of American TV that's going on now, where a lot of people say that TV is higher quality than than films at the moment in America. I think so. And there are other characters inside this. There's been linked to sort of the, the, this relationship of of, of bringing uh, the TV. Uh, pilot into a film and the uh, like the Hollywood guys I mean that's just a, a, another I mean it's, it's just made up of scene after scene after scene you know it's, it's I, I think we've been in, uh, in in review situation before where we've uh, we've we've gone to a, an entire film and said look you know it's worth it maybe for this scene actually this is just scene after scene after scene <laughs> yeah. of, uh, of pure excellence isn't it and and sort of the a lot of the time is very tense so it's very tense in the in the meeting room uh, where uh, the, the guys is golf club and <laughs> there are some people the guy tries these uh, espresso and then spits it out onto, a, <laughs> on, on, onto the, the, the handkerchief and, and, and things like that and you just think well you can see it happening though can't you, you just think yeah. well yeah this is probably an insight into Hollywood that you know must it must be true yeah that was uh, that was Angelo Badalamenti who, who spat out that uh, espresso it? yeah yep. where do I know him from did he do a song with that guy he did a song with uh, Tim Booth Tim from Booth? James yeah, yeah. Booth and the Bad Angel did you notice the, the other Hollywood guy uh, with him was uh, Dan Hedaya. Can you remember him as Carla's ex-husband from Cheers? Well, you don't remember that. (laughs) No. (laughs) 
Really? Yeah. Oh, Go back and have a look right. at that. This is fate, <laughs> and this is saying that series five, episode one to six, will be series one to six of Cheers. Uh, and I think we're all on board with that, aren't we? Yeah, um, I think you'll find that Rachel may be away. For the <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got time in my life to rewatch all of Cheers. Frasier, mind you. I'm neither here nor there with Fraser. <gasps> yeah, I, I no, and let me, tell, let me tell you, let me tell you exactly where I am with Fraser. I never want to watch an episode of Frasier. When I'm watching an fra- episode of Frasier, I'm very happy about it, but I don't crave another one afterwards. There oh, you go. Okay. <laughs> Whereas Cheers. Wouldn't you like to get away? <laughs> <laughs> in fact, there's a piano. We always, the studio we're in now, and you know, let's go off on a tangent because this, let's face it, Mulholland Drive's all about it. <laughs> hey, David Lynch did. Yeah. Go for it. Let's be influenced here. Now, I, I, one thing I've always wanted to do, and you know, I'm, I'm, my piano skills are getting a touch better these days, and there's always a, there was a piano behind us here in the uh, in the studio. I think maybe I should learn the theme tune. Here's, here it is. Here it is. Right, right. This is it. This is it. I've got it. I've got it. We're only allowed to review Cheers on spoiler once I've learned the theme tune to Cheers <laughs> on the on the kid. Da, 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 that then we're allowed to do it on spoiler. Okay, okay, okay. Deal. that sounds right. like a good Set deal. Stone. Everyone's deal. everyone's everyone's good for that. Right, okay. So. <laughs> 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 I am, yeah. And while we're talking about other characters, which is where we were, believe it or not. Yes, we were. Um, Billy Ray Cyrus, <laughs> discuss. <laughs> Well, Rachel. obviously, as this was my first um, watch, proper watch, uh-huh. of a David Lynch film, I, yeah, I was like, I had to ask my housemate, I went, is that? And he went, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, okay, um, yeah. I think that was more jarring than the guy popping out behind the brick wall at the back of the cafe, mm. to be quite honest. Was, so right. like, oh, hello. Uh, well, well, one thing we can certainly promise the list, dear, our dear listener, is that uh, we won't be learning achy breaky yeah. Oh, no. Uh, Wouldn't it have been great if that had been the horror behind Winkies? <laughs> Billy Ray Cyrus performing <laughs> Achy Breaky Heart. <laughs> I think earlier on, did you mention, you've mentioned Roger Ebert? And we, yeah. we, quite often we bring him up when we're talking about uh, critics. Um, one thing he said about it was that it works directly on the emotions like music. And I thought that, that just Ooh. perfectly sums That's it up idea. because it's not, it, it doesn't have to have a plot, does it? No, and we've. Got, I think we, you know, when we when we talked previously to Withnail about Withnail and I, and you know, there's something without a plot. I think we, we, we should start a campaign for films with no plot because they, yeah. they certainly seem to be amongst our favourite things, yeah. don't they? Oh, I've got plenty in my collection. For... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jim Jarmusch, that's the name for you. Oh. Look up Jim Jarmusch. None of his films have plots. I will brilliant. pitch for a Jim Jarmusch film <laughs> in the next series. <laughs> it's fantastic. Mm. All emotions, wonderful. But get, I suppose getting that across, getting that at the, at the, at the writing stage... How do you write something like this? At the writing <laughs> stage, at the pilot stage or that you know that kind of thing getting it across to these the schmucks in hollywood must be such mm. a to release the checks for it must be such a difficult thing you know when you say right actually what we're doing here is we're creating something that works directly to the emotions <laughs> uh, like music yeah uh, oh all right okay yeah i mean we're all sat here now thinking yeah that's exactly what it is mm. someone comes and pitches that to us what are you going to say um <laughs> yeah, i'd love to hear a david lynch pitch actually I yes, sir, how right. you would... well i suppose at this stage in his career he doesn't have to no i've got this great idea of course you can dave Fine. Yeah. Yes. But um Well no, but, I mean, you think that, but I would think that, but I don't think that would happen, would it? You know, know. he still have to work pretty hard. So this was after Twin Peaks, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah So he yeah. had I think that was where he came in. Look, it's gonna be a bit like Twin Peaks, 
that's all right then. But I'm wondering now, I mean, you probably know this because you're a massive fan. Does he go in with storyboards? I'm just wondering if he uses art. Um, I, I have no like idea how he... Because uh, it's not going to work with dialogue, is it? And Wait. it's not going to work with plot because there isn't one particularly. So I'm thinking maybe he works with Angelo, Battlemente, and says, could you write me a bit of music that makes it sound a bit like this? And mm. Maybe it's a bit more of an experiential kind of immersive pitch rather than... I want to do a film about this. Maybe yeah. it's more arty than that. Ooh, I really want to be in the room now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well let's let's make it happen. Yes, come on, David. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any any bits that you felt didn't fit that felt like leftover bits of the TV series idea, which he could have lopped out of the film? There's a couple of little scenes yeah. with the hitman. Yes, I was which about I think to say. maybe don't need to be in there. Uh, yeah, there's one one where it's sort of a black comedy farce where he starts shooting everyone yeah. and then there's, there's just this strange little scene where he he, uh, he meets a prostitute and she's got yeah. erect nipples yeah and I, that that was it weird. was it was a strange uncomfortable scene mm. i think I, I don't have any problems with with the uh the lesbian love scenes that are in this later mm. i don't think they're gratuitous no at all but that that scene Mm. seemed a bit odd and uncomfortable mm. to me. Yeah. And this well, is coming from a David Lynch fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I'd made a note about the, 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 the sex and the, and the nudity there, that a lot of the time you would say, right, well, most people say, well, you know, if it's important to the plot, I mean, actually most of the time it's not, is it? You know, we all know why it's there, to appeal to 15-year-old boys. And this, the, I think those scenes particularly would appeal, <laughs> would appeal to the 15-year-old boy in me. But I, I don't know, in, in a film where there is no plot, you, you can put that in there. Yeah. Well, I think it would have it would have been severely lessened without him because I think it's a, for me this is like a, a dense psychosexual exploration of someone's dreams, mm. and so obviously uh, with how important Camilla or Rita, uh, depending on Betty the, or whoever, yeah, yeah. Uh, is to Betty, it's going to be part of these dreams, and you can't you can't remove sex from it, otherwise mm. you you undermine a large part of the. Uh, the themes, but you can't do it in a coy sort of Austin Powers way where there's a couple of pineapples in the way or something. So, <laughs> uh, I think uh, for me, there's a lot of when I watched it that I carry around this kind of liberal guilt about exploitation quite a lot. And I find myself, if there's like a nude scene that turns up in a film that I like, I go through sort of in my head if I can justify it. And I can't always, I mean. Beverly Hills Cop is one of my favourite films of the 80s, but there's a gratuitous strip club scene in there, which is obviously just there mm. for a strip club scene. Uh, and it doesn't need to be there. But uh, I think that this guilt also kind of indicates a kind of male arrogance and that we feel as men that if there's a lesbian sex scene on screen, that it's been served up to us, that we are the audience that... We're men and it's for us, whereas it's not necessarily the case. Uh, I mentioned uh, back in the Widnow and I episode a brilliant documentary called The Celluloid Closet. And they interview a lot of uh, lesbian critics on that who say that for years there was no lesbian scenes in films at all. And there was this huge hunger among viewers to see it represented on screen and, and feel something they could mm. identify with. And so I think to assume every time that you see a lesbian sex scene that it's it's just there for kicks mm. uh, is to risk taking away some barriers that we've broken down to equality. And so I think the, the major thing is to define whether it's gratuitous or not. And by my criteria, 
I think it's it's well handled and and necessary. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, obviously, from a woman's point of view, I've thought it's tender and beautiful yeah. and emotional and entirely necessary. I didn't find it gratuitous in the least. And as you say, it's a dream sequence. She's hardly going to cover herself up is she in a dream this is her dream life this is wishful thinking this is what she wants in her life and it i thought it was beautiful i'm glad you said that because i've I've got the same word tender down Mm. there and i've written that like the uh all the dialogue in that scene Mm. what uh, those scenes what little there is of it it's not this sort of fantasy fulfilling dirty talk it's all declarations of romantic love in fact i think isn't like one of the only lines in it they say, I love you. Yeah. And no, it's lovely because you need that depth of um, love and connection between them to understand why in the real world or what I think is the real world, why she's gone to such depths of despair about what she's done. And, that, you know, she was deeply, deeply in love with this woman. Yeah. And so when you dream about her, of course, you're going to dream like that. And why not? I mean, if you censor that, then you're censoring her dreams. And I agree with you. I think it is when you see lesbian sex scenes especially in films there's often a a sense of oh this is for the chaps but actually not this time absolutely not this time you know straight lesbian bisexual whatever this was a beautiful love scene between two people who loved each other and I thought it was great I thought it was really necessary okay well I'm going to pop my cowboy hat on now and (laughs) (laughs) interrupt this conversation Um, but we're going to talk uh, now about magic now creating a sense of magic in a movie is a difficult task only a handful of directors have mastered this art and Andy reckons David Lynch is one of them but what exactly is real movie magic here's Andy to explain Since the birth of moving pictures, the word magic has been frequently used to describe the creation of new and exciting worlds up on the big screen. At first, this description must have been wholly apt, since a medium which allowed us to capture and relive bygone moments of everyday life surely felt like an inconceivable form of wizardry, so much so that audiences would sit transfixed in front of images of workers leaving a factory, or shriek in terror at a train rumbling towards the celluloid safety net that separated the cinematic world from reality. But being the fickle species that we are, people quickly tired of the novelty of mere movement and demanded more from their entertainment. It didn't take long for adventurous filmmakers to begin trying to recapture the magic that had seemingly been so easily lost, and films like George Méliès' A Trip to the Moon began to unlock the potential of cinema to offer more immersive representations of the fantastical wonderlands previously only accessible in our imaginations. From Buster Keaton stepping through the cinema screen in Sherlock Jr. to Judy Garland emerging from a black and white Kansas into a Technicolor Oz, or Woody and Buzz's first computer-animated encounter, the movies have given us a million magical moments, but in amongst these treasures, there are just as many misfires that aim to be magical and emerge seeming as pedestrian as those workers leaving the factory appear to modernise. An atmosphere of real magic is one of cinema's most elusive holy grails, which is why it is far more common to find magic in isolated instants than in prolonged feature-length form. The problem seems to be that filmmakers have oversimplified what magic is, assuming that serving up wands, wings and glitter on a plate will be enough to tap into its power to transport the imagination and the body to a whole new world. In fact, this approach is far more likely to result in flaccid fantasy failures like the fairy dust-flavoured fart of Matthew Vaughan's Stardust. 
Though these ingredients can undoubtedly play a part in the mixture, it's not enough to aggressively oversell nostalgia, special effects and period costumes, and more often than not, an audience can see through desperate attempts to give them what they're presumed to want, based on market research. Even on those occasions when sustained magic is achieved across a whole running time, it is rare that a filmmaker can pull off the trick twice, let alone on multiple occasions. As far as I can tell, there are just three filmmakers who have achieved a satisfyingly stirring sense of magic in practically everything they've made, and this diverse trio, and their very different visions, illustrate just how hard a concept real cinematic magic is to pin down. My first maestro of magic is Jim Henson, creator of the Muppet characters who have touched the lives of so many people since their first appearance in 1955 on the WRC TV show Salmon Friends. Salmon Friends is brought to you by... Asco! A primitive forerunner for Henson's later shows, Salmon Friends still displayed an embryonic form of the instantly appealing puppet designs and lively, relatable performances that were so crucial to Henson's own brand of magic. I could keep on naming products till my face turns blue. It's already green. Sadly, most episodes of Salmon Friends were wiped after broadcast, but Henson's next big TV project, Sesame Street, is thankfully still available in all its glory. By dropping Henson's charming Muppet characters into realistic Manhattan street settings, Sesame Street opened up a world of real magic that made it seem entirely plausible to generations of children that a giant, inquisitive yellow bird and his elephantine imaginary friend could live in the same street as them. Henson himself performed key characters, such as Kermit the Frog, Hi-ho, Kermit the Frog, here today to talk to you about the letter Z. Ernie. Hey, Bert. Hey, Bert. And Guy Smiley. America's favourite game show host in person. And his close-knit team of performers imbued each character with such human qualities that the rods visibly controlling their arms seemed irrelevant. Henson's work also has a distinct adult sensibility, which made Sesame Street, in its successor, the primetime hit The Muppet Show, as popular with parents as they were with children. Evidence of this adult sensibility can be found in Henson's lesser-known non-puppet films from the 60s. The Oscar-nominated short Time Piece is a mesmerising, rhythmic meditation on life, death and identity, while the hour-long TV play The Cube is a Kafkaesque tale of a man trapped in a doorless white cube through which various strange characters pass, but from which the man cannot escape. This is weird. Henson's darker side was less visible in his 70s TV work, but it was certainly to the fore again in his groundbreaking fantasy film The Dark Crystal. Here, Henson clearly displayed his talent for conjuring real magic, presenting audiences with a vivid, enchanted kingdom which few would actually want to visit. This was also true of Henson's lighter but intermittently menacing labyrinth, in which a momentary, illusory mid-film return to the real world feels like a spell-breaking sigh of relief. Oh, I dreamed it all, Lancelot, but it was so real. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? This understanding that magic is not always inviting and often malevolent is key to Henson's grasp of its elusive qualities, and his projects until his tragic, premature death would continue to alternate between the witty whimsy of his Muppet movies and the sinister experiments of the storyteller and the Christmas toy. 
While the Muppets have remained consistently popular since Henson's death in 1990, most long-term fans agree that, although they remain the same two partially submerged ping-pong balls, Kermit's eyes no longer have that same sparkle without Henson's voice and movements behind them. No one will ever sing the Rainbow Connection quite like Jim. The Rainbow Connection, the lovers, the dreamers, Given animation's ability to go places and do things beyond the reach of live-action cinema, it is perhaps inevitable that one of my magical filmmakers would be an animator, but it may surprise many to hear that it is not Walt Disney. Though Disney undoubtedly has more than his share of magical moments in his animated canon, his films often erred on the cautious side of conventional cinemagic, with princesses, fairies and anthropomorphic animals keeping credibility at arm's length. This was not the case with Japanese animation legend Hayao Miyazaki, and while he was dubbed the Japanese Walt Disney by lazy critics, Miyazaki has repeatedly distinguished himself as a filmmaker of great depth, originality and access to real magic. One of Miyazaki's most effective techniques is to focus on human children, usually young girls, as his protagonists, immediately making the stories more relatable for audiences. He then builds up the fantastical elements of his plots to varying extents around the starting point of a realistic world. In some cases, the magical elements emerge quickly and hold the screen for the majority of the runtime, as in Spirited Away, where the 10-year-old Chihiro finds her parents transformed into pigs in the opening minutes and is thrust into a spirit bathhouse filled with bizarre, unpredictable creations. By comparison, My Neighbour Totoro holds back from overusing its titular forest sprite, only dropping him into the plot when the narrative demands. For the most part, My Neighbour Totoro is about two young girls adapting to life in a new house while their mother recovers in hospital from a long-term illness. Miyazaki uses Totoro in such a way that his existence outside of the girls' imaginations is never confirmed or denied. It is this delicate balance between the ability to depict magic and the restraint to know when the story requires you to do so that have made Miyazaki's films so successful and enduring. My final magical filmmaker, and perhaps my most controversial choice, is David Lynch. Lynch is well known for being a director whose films explore dark and troubling themes, but to my mind, this is not to the exclusion of a real sense of magic. The world Lynch creates are dreamlike, possibly interconnected realities that maintain such a consistent, though never repetitive atmosphere that it is impossible to mistake his work for that of anyone else. Lynch's own brand of magic is used to explore themes of mental illness, sexual violence, death and the afterlife. A cold, alien otherworldliness prevails, exacerbated by an absurdist humour that gnaws away at the grotesque without ever crossing into the gratuitous. This sense of malevolent magic is clear in the bizarre symbolic happenings of a razorhead, the baffling identity shifts of Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, and the overt Wizard of Oz references in Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart. Even Lynch's films set in the real world, such as The Elephant Man and The Straight Story, are touched by the sense of oddness and discomforting melancholy. Perhaps the most chilling example of Lynch's variation on magic can be found in his bewildering nine-episode sitcom, Rabbits, in which a family of anthropomorphic deadpan rabbits mill around a living room set, exchanging seemingly unconnected lines of dialogue, interrupted at random by the laughter and whooping of an unseen studio audience. I need to tell you something. It was red. 
Did he say anything? series progresses, patterns begin to emerge, and amidst such ominous lines as something's wrong and no one must find out about this, certain references to a deceased family dog and oblique allusions to reincarnation begin to stand out. It happened like that earlier. Who could have known? Fans of rabbits have laboured long and hard to decode it, and attempts to piece together the meaning of this fascinating series are a microcosm of a larger game that, as a Lynch fan, I've been engaged in for several decades, trying to penetrate the interlocking worlds of this director's entire catalogue. I may never fully understand the mind of David Lynch, and that just makes him all the more magical. As the director opened up the true scope of cinematic magic to me, I will always think of him as the man who pulled the wings off Tinkerbell. So thanks for that, Andy. And um, now you know, I mean, you know, I mean, the way we met, Andy, is that I'm a fan of your writing. Previous program we did called the Reading Room, and uh, we, we we had you on in, in in there, but it's for a reason because you're an excellent writer. Right. Now that line you put in there, the man that pulled the wings off Tinkerbell. Now I think that's probably the best line you've written. <laughs> I think. Oh, thank you. I wasn't sure about that when I wrote it, but uh... no, no, you should be. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's official now. I've said it. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. It is. I mean, I don't know. If, I mean, for me, I mean that line, just that line itself said oh wait it, it just it made me think a lot you know it's, it, it sort of seemed about growing up and that kind of thing and I thought mm. I thought that was really good but you see the, the, the magic thing and, and I don't know this uh, <laughs> it's funny you know you can always tell when I'm unsure about how to approach a, a topic and um, when we uh, when we talk about sex and nudity in this room I always start going ooh, 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 how am I oh, am I going about this right away oh I need to be careful I need to be sensitive I need to be you know exactly you need to think about the Ofcom license etc etc <laughs> when you start talking about magic um, you don't want to be seen as a as a as a Fruit Loop, but uh, I've been reading. I've been reading a lot. I mean, you you guys know I'm a big fan of, of Bill Drummond from the KLF, uh, and there's a book out called The KLF Chaos Magic and the Band That Burned a Million Pounds by John Higgs, and there there are some sentences in there that that, that can make you stare off into the distance for a very long time talking about magic. And I think magic is what happens in Mulholland Drive in that this didn't exist. And this is this is what generally about creativity. It doesn't exist. It's in your head. It doesn't exist until. But then it appears and then it's an actual thing. And I suppose what, the, what that book actually says, and, it, you know, you can look around the room we're in now and there are, the, the, there are chairs and tables and things like this. At one point they were in these people's heads and now it's a thing. And that is where the magic comes in. So it's funny, over the last six months or something like that, I've started believing in magic <laughs> simply because it has to exist because that's that, yeah, things that's appear. Really yeah. Things appear. Does that sound like hooey or, or are you going to start wheeling no, me out of the it's studio so now? weird that you're talking about this because I've just started reading, I think it's called Big Magic or something like that and it's by Elizabeth Gilbert who wrote Eat, Pray, Love which is not one of my favourite books. However, she talks about the magic of creativity and it's almost what you've just said, this idea that these ideas that come into your head and, and, and manifest, where do they come from and how do they become manifest? And yeah, like you say, just simple things. You're looking around going, OK, this is a, a radio studio. But somebody had to conceive of the idea of this. And, <laughs> yeah. But everything. I mean, she told this amazing story. I don't know how true this is, but it sort of made me go a bit tingly because she said um, for a while she worked on this story. She had some inspiration. 
She said it hit her like a brick and she said it had inspiration for a story about the Amazon and this particular moment in time when they tried to build a highway through it. So she researched it and she got it down to where there was going to be this woman, this teacher from Minnesota who was going to go to the Amazon and there was going to be a love story. And then things happened in her life and she put this story to bed for a little while. And it, two years she put it in this, in this box for a while and didn't really do anything with it. And then when she got it back out again, when she was in a good mood to do it again, it had gone. The, the sort of mystery had gone. And she was like, I just can't do this. It feels contrived. And then she met another writer called Anne Patchett. She was talking away to him. They got on really, really well straight away, real connection. Oh, what are you writing at the moment? Oh, I'm writing a story about the Amazon. What? And there's a teacher in it from Minnesota who, what? And this was Anne Patchett who was saying, she was basically writing almost the same story and it turned out that the moment when the muse left her it went to Anne Patchett and Anne Patchett wrote the story wow and I thought that's really weird <laughs> <laughs> very John, uh, very David Lynch-esque but um it, I just thought that was amazing this idea that these these little creative ideas these little flashes of inspiration are everywhere and it's just whether you can be open enough to actually take these ideas in and then stick with them and work with them otherwise if you don't they'll just go to somebody else mm. so those times when you know when you think of an idea and you think oh, I really want to try this and you you sort of, you keep it to yourself even and then you don't do anything with it and then a few years down the line somebody's done it you go ah oh, that was my idea <laughs> and it probably was yeah but it left you because you didn't do anything with it it is a bit of magic about the world. Um, God knows we need a bit. <laughs> so. We certainly do. I had an idea about a toaster at the weekend. <laughs> it would, you know, when you got your toast, yeah, and you turn it to number three, right, and it gives you the toast you want, and then you put another load in because some toast is never enough, <laughs> and so you have more, and then it burns it. I, the idea was that you would put a fan inside the toaster so it cools the elements down. So each time it comes up, and I was discussing this, and I thought, I see, we're going to be gazillionaires here. Uh, so I think someone said it had already been done. Oh. Either that or, actually, I don't know that person very well who I was talking to. Maybe they've... They've <laughs> half inched it. Mm. Well, someone's going to have that idea now because it's on the radio. I was going to say. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm not even bothered about making money out of it. I just want the thing. Yes, it'd be very useful. Yeah. I'll, I'll pay up to... Twenty five ninety nine. dollars <laughs> You're not bothered about the bread, just the toast. Mm, yeah. Right. Uh, anyone got a clue how we circumnavigate ourselves around back to, uh, to Mulholland Drive from this? Is, this is getting more complex than the film, isn't it? I, know, I, I, know, I mean, there's a, there's a surreal element into it. And I, I mean, I know I made about it. It's just like, it, 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 although we've talked about Sort of magical thinking, and I think we all think everyone's capable of magical thinking because everyone obviously is capable of it. This kind of this kind of finish to be able to get Mulholland Drive in takes a genius because it's it's, it's not just thinking right. I'm going to be surreal, and I'm going to put uh, a giraffe dancing with an umbrella. Right? Okay, it's, it's not that because that anyone can do that, and it'll be if 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 I was to do that, it would be rubbish. It's it's not that. What what has David Lynch got that no one else has? Which is an awful question. That's a big one. Isn't it? I think it's just that he is David Lynch. Mm. But what makes him that way? (laughs) And how is it that he's able to communicate with so many different people? Because this is the thing. Somebody could be... There's plenty of artists out there that are quite self-indulgent and they communicate what they are and who they are and what they feel. And hardly anybody gets it. And it doesn't even move them. They just look at it and go, what's that about? But this... David Lynch can affect so many people. I'm quite scared of things and I've avoided him for quite a long time because I watched one episode of Twin Peaks and got the bejesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so no, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, exactly I was like, I don't want to watch anything about him. 
But I love this. It completely connected with me. And the fact that it's at the top of one of those lists that you mentioned at the start of the programme, a lot of people do. Mm. And so his genius for me is not just that he has these ideas, it's that he can move people and, and move them a lot and in different ways. And he taps into so many different people in their psyches. That is amazing. That is genius. I think that he also... I, I wrote this quote down and... All the time we've been talking, I thought, no, I'm not going to be able to fit that into what we're talking about. But actually, now I can. <laughs> uh, because I'm going to use the word, it's the word elegant. There was a guy called Nev Pierce writing for the BBC and he said, even if you think Mulholland Drive is drivel, it is beautifully elegant drivel. Mm-hmm. Now, I suppose that is, there is definitely, there's a, an elegance about, well, no, not an, it is an elegant film. There's not an elegance about it. It is an elegant yeah. film. So I suppose if you have that touch of being able to make things look and sound beautiful and elegant and tender, like, you know, mm. you said earlier, without being pretentious, there you go, Andy, <laughs> <laughs> um, then, you know, I, I, I think that's, that's where the magic uh, comes in. Now, normally when we, we walk towards the end, I would say, what did you think of the ending? Uh, my question to you, is there one? <laughs> I don't think there has to be. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can take it how you want. And it's, it's so open to you personally. It can be such a personal film. Mm. It certainly was for me, from especially from the moment, and I haven't mentioned music, but I'm going to mention the song. <laughs> just the, the Spanish oh, of version of Crying. Oh, of course. Gorgeous, oh my it? goodness me. I was almost, <laughs> my breath went. I was like, this is just stunning. And that was it for me. I was lost from that point on anyway. I was pretty much into it anyway. But as soon as that voice rang out, oh, it mm. was just beautiful. It could have ended there for me, quite honestly. Yeah. And that is a thing that stuck with me more than anything. Um, yes, the visuals and everything else, but that voice and the two women crying. Oh, it's giving me goosebumps even now. <laughs> it's just, just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I think an interesting point to make here as well is that... Uh, there might be an ending, but it might not be the ending. A lot of people have said that this film doesn't occur in that order. Mm-hmm. And so when she shoots herself, that's not necessarily the ending. It could be that what we see happens as some sort of afterlife or something. So what we're given is is essentially a load of jigsaw pieces. And you, if you don't like that ending, you can put another one in there. You can reconstruct it in your head however you like. So... There doesn't have to be an ending at all, or you can choose one. It's all laid out there for yeah. you. And, uh, it's great, and it just keeps going like. round and round. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's done, and, and as we th- did or didn't say in the introduction, who knows, um, it's, it's ours now, isn't it? I mean, that's it. Like, mm. like no other film, I think it is... It's now ours. Yeah. You mm. know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, that, I think, is, 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 a really, is a really great gift. Um, right, OK, so rating scale... Uh, I'm getting, I'm running out of these. (laughs) (laughs) So much so that I typed in Google rating scale. (laughs) And it came up with this list of, you know, like when you fill in a form or an online form and it says, were you uh, satisfied, etc. Right, so, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is, I mean, it seemed like a good idea at the time. (laughs) Now I'm sat in front of the microphone, not so much. But, um, were you not at all satisfied? (laughs) Slightly satisfied? Neutral, very satisfied, or extremely satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Jim Broadbent-esque voice. 
Thanks. I'm, I'm taking that as a compliment. Do, do. It was excellent. Uh, yeah, I'm available for voiceover work. Uh, he, gets, he gets a ton of it, doesn't he? He does, but there you are. Yeah. You can take his word from it. I'm moving to Soho. Right. Um, I'm going to, well, I'm not even asking you that. You're extremely satisfied. We all, Obviously. all adored it, didn't we? Uh, OK, so thanks, everyone. Thanks, Rachel, Andy, Johnny, our producer, Phil Hawkins, for his excellent suggestion. Uh, but, uh, hey, let's not make a habit of those suggestions. Uh, and, of course, you for downloading. Uh, now, we're going to leave you with a man who is not yet a national treasure, but is without doubt a regional treasure. Andy Goulding. The infinite playground of dreams is a world without limits, it seems, where for eight hours a night we're submerged in delight to indulge in excessive extremes. But sadly, my unconscious mind is a little more dull and unkind, and enjoys recreating the grim and frustrating details of the workaday grind. Well, people all over the nation have dreams filled with joy and elation, as I lie in my bedsheets, I'm mired in spreadsheets and tedious administration. Then it all starts again in the morning, through a haze of perpetual yawning. If they find me once more on the broom-covered floor, I'm due for my third written warning. I guess it's a bit of a shame that I'm not in the politics game, as we've seen on the news, a day's work and a snooze for those guys is one and the same. I envy those Tory backbenchers, immune to the pressure of censures, who have drool on their shirt when they should be alert and they don't even take out their dentures. Still, I'd rather not join with their number, for I don't understand how they slumber, so content in their bed, like a log or the dead, with the rest of us saps in dead lumber. Dum, Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher, with additional music from the Mulholland Drive original soundtrack. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us, sharing links to our show or writing us a nice review on iTunes. We'll be uncovering the meaning of life in Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Six pints of bitter, said Ford Prefect to the barman of the horse and groom. And quickly, please, the world's about to end. If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful Cathedral City of Lincoln. I mean, I just came here from Deep River, Ontario, and now I'm in this dream place. Yeah.